Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm Kevin Rose, it's Friday the 13th of September and welcome to the latest Sound Advice podcast from Best Advice. In this show we'll be discussing the future of the first time buyer market after the end of Help to Buy, three things that have caught the eye of our guest broker, what to do with inquiries from high net worth individuals and marketing mortgages to millennials. Now, the Help to Buy scheme is uh, due to shift to first-time buyers only in 2021 and then end completely in 2023. And so how will first-time buyers get on the property ladder after that? I'm joined on the line by Jane Benjamin, Director of Mortgages at Sesame and PMS. Hi, Jane. Hi there. Hi. So you have been calling for lenders to come up with some solutions, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been working closely with Homes England and lenders. We work with more than 100 lenders, partners in Sesame PMS and the the actual shortage of lenders who work in that high loan to value space is going to be a massive problem for the industry and for the end customer um, when the help to buy scheme finishes in 2023. The main problem that there is is deposit. The help to buy scheme has helped 81% of first-time buyers and that is exactly what it was designed to do when it it launched and that's massive. I mean everybody dreams of um, owning a home but it's getting more and more difficult now because of the size of the deposit um, a first-time buyer needs. So the fact that the scheme has sort of enabled that is fantastic, and it is just after what happens next. How do you suggest dealing with the reticence that a lot of lenders have about higher LTVs? Yeah, it's difficult because, I mean, obviously lenders have their bandings in how much lending they can lend at certain loan values and you know, of course, there's regulation around that and, and, and risk appetite. There's lots of different things, even down to the type of customers that drive the lender's risk model. You know, and if a lender's going to lend a, a big chunk of money to somebody, obviously they want to know that it's a good decision. And also, as far as re- um, responsible lending goes, you know, they've got to make sure that if they're going to lend to that customer and the customer moves into a home with a massive dream, they're not going to have the rug pulled from under their feet and, and lose that, you know, or, or end up in negative equity. And, you know, I mean, obviously with new build, there's sort of a new build premium. So that's got to be taken into account. There's, there's lots of different things. So, so what we're talking to the lenders about and where we hope to see some sort of change in innovation is around sort of product development. So with lenders moving in high, into higher loan to value, so um, as I said, there's uh, a very few lenders that lend at high loan to value on new builds. I think there's 10 who lend at over 90, 95% um, on new builds. That's <laughs> not many out of more than, a, you know, more than 100 lenders. So we're sort of lobbying with lenders to, to do that. And as I said, it's to do with risk appetite. The other options that are available, and we're talking to people about at the moment, are shared ownership shared equity, lots of different sorts of schemes that will, you know, enable somebody to um, buy a house, but not outright on day one, but eventually use different schemes and innovations to be able to to own the house ultimately. And obviously house building is, uh, is, is the other part of the equation. Yeah, it, it is. And that's, that's a problem. I mean, the government's target of 300,000 homes a year um, we're not there. We're far. There's a lot of issues sort of driving the supply um, there. We could sort of question the fact, are the right type of houses being built? When I bought my first home, um, I bought a semi. So historically, semi-detached terrace were the starter homes for 
first-time buyers. Now everybody is sort of aspiring to bigger homes. But, but the problem with that is the builders are building three and four bed um, detached properties with a, um, a limited number of affordable homes on their site. So you could sort of argue that actually the type of properties that are being built aren't aimed at first-time buyers. Um, they're aimed at next-time buyers. But on the same token, you could sort of say, well, that might kickstart the market and somebody move from their semi or terrace into a um, a detached house and free up that for a first-time buyer. So there's lots of challenges. I'll throw another bit into the mix, if that's okay. You've also got the demographic of older borrowers. And I think product innovation around that will help with retirement interest only, potentially equity release, or even just like mainstream mortgages that are stretching out the upper age limit. Because if that enables an older borrower to take some money out of their existing home, because in the in the um, economy at the moment, we've got um, a, a number of older borrowers, or the majority, that are cash poor, asset rich. So if they can take a chunk out to give to their grandchildren or their children to enable them to get on the property ladder, um, that may also help. And I believe you have views on modern methods of construction and how that can help the UK to meet its house building target. Yeah, definitely, because that will speed up the whole process of house building. That's one of the problems. I mean, you've got the whole planning process, the house, the land purchase, where the land is. The the problem with the modern method is because you're moving into unknown territory. So, number one, you've got lenders' risk appetite with their property risk teams. Do they want to do it? Because nobody really knows you know, what it's going to be like or the longevity of the property. Then you've got the valuers who have got to work to the lender's risk models. Again, they're sort of valuing a property that is unknown with regards to longevity and and having to put a price on that. Ultimately, a customer's buying a property, again, that they don't know. They think they're buying it for life, but how long is that actually going to last? So there's lots of issues around it. But that is potentially, if the industry can get its head around that, that is a potential solution for being able to build more homes quicker. But it still ultimately brings us back to the problem is we've got to help first-time buyers to be able to get onto the ladder with regards to affordability. And finally, Jane, I mean, how do you think history will view the Help to Buy scheme? I mean, it's helped a lot of people buy, but there have been criticisms. Uh, I mean, according to the government's latest figures, it helped more uh, households with an uh, income of over 80,000 than, than those on less than 30. And then, you know, people have made accusations that it's just helped boost the profits of house builders like Persa. I mean, in the round, how would you view Help to Buy? It, it's been amazing. It's been absolutely fantastic for, for you know, to help, number one, raise awareness of, of sort of, the issues that are there with affordability. But for first-time buyers in this market, they've actually got a chance to be able to own their own home. And that shouldn't be outside of their reach. The figures, despite the economic and political uncertainty, there were 370,000 new first-time buyers' mortgages completed in 2018. That's a a, a lot of mortgages. And that's 1.9% more than in 2017. So... With those sort of numbers and the help to buy, helping to get those people on the property ladder, that's, that's got to be good. And, and as a distributor for Sesame and P- with Sesame and PMS for our members, 
and the whole industry will be lobbying and championing with all of the sort of the bodies and the lenders to make sure that we continue the great work that, that the Help to Buy scheme's done. Well, it'll be interesting to see how lenders react to your call for higher LTVs and more innovation. Uh, Jane, thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Now for our weekly spot where a broker talks us through three things that have caught their eye over the past week. We're joined by David Hollingsworth of London and Country. Hello, David. Hi, Kevin. Good to have you with us. Now, you're going to provide three of the best things that uh, you've seen over the past week. Firstly, I think something in the equity release market. Well, it's, it's kind of linked to equity release, and it's certainly from a provider that will be familiar to, to those who advise on equity release. But this is a retirement interest-only mortgage. So this sits as a, as a standard interest-only mortgage, but Hodge have um, launched a new product type, which is pretty innovative, fixed for life. So there's been a lot of talk about longer-term fixed rates in the mainstream market. This product is aimed, obviously, at older borrowers who want to perhaps release a little bit of equity out of the property, but they are happy and able to afford a standard mortgage rather than use a, a roll-up situation. So that's what the retirement interest only market aims to serve. And Hodge have decided that they're in the position to offer a fixed rate for life, which I think is a feature that could appeal to that type of borrower who just doesn't want to have any worries about the ups and downs of interest rates over the time because the Rio, of course, can run all the way through until sale of the property or, or on death or removal into long-term care. So this is... Uh, stands out the rate starts from 4.35 percent um there's a fee-free option as well uh one thing that people will have to take account of is that there are early repayment charges but only in the first eight years and hodges also applied a kind of bit of flexibility for those who are looking to downsize and might need to repay as a result of that so interesting move retirement interest only is still a relatively young market but it's uh, it's starting to expand now so you think maybe innovations like this might uh, help increase the demand for rio products yeah i think short-term products when you're talking about a product that might be designed to to last for the remainder of a borrower's lifetime or, or the life in that property at least um, having these longer term fixed rate options I think could appeal and we're now starting to see actually a, a whole range of products available under retirement interest only um, criteria so there's a bit more choice I think there's also a bit more awareness from borrowers and brokers alike uh, and so this market lost will remain something of a niche of course um, it's starting to develop nicely. Right, next up, changes in the five-year fixed rate market. Yeah, I suppose it's a continuation of market conditions that we've become used to, where it's one lender tweaking and only to see another lender come back at them with a, a reprice. Uh, and rates have been coming down. But I think if you look at the fixed rate market, some really enticing options for borrowers now. So the big banks have noticeably been going head-to-head in this side of things and with five-year fixed rates being so popular at the moment I think they're kind of noteworthy and worth looking at so the likes of Santander which has an option at 1.55 percent now fixed five years although it does carry a bigger fee but there's others HSBC 
um, have got some extremely competitive rates across the board. And of course, we've seen Barclays and NatWest all competing hard in those categories. So for the borrowers at the moment who are perhaps a little bit anxious about the uncertainty in the, the economy generally, they're able to take some action and really make the most of these low rates and fix in their mortgage rates. So take control of, of what's probably their biggest outgoing. And you think lenders are likely to do a lot of business here? I mean, you know, you've got Brexit uh, uncertainty and also a lot of fixed rates are coming to an end at the, at the moment anyway. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of deals that are coming to maturity. I think remortgage is the focus for most. Uh, and we quite often see lenders just looking to up their game anyway around this time of year. So those who are feeling like they've got enough appetite to take a bit more and are keen to get that on the books before the end of the year, they're often incentivized to just push a bit lower on price and try and see if they can get a few more people in through the front door. And David, finally, what else has caught your eye? The release on the mortgage lenders and administrators, administrators statistics, try saying that um, quickly. Um, so that came out this week and, and one of the, the headlines, I suppose, from that was to do with the, the high LTV lending. So we're talking anything over 90%. Whilst that still is only clocking 5.5% of the market, that, that was picked out as being the highest since quarter four of 2008. So, you know, going way back to the times when the, the credit crunch was really getting a grip of the market. So um, it does kind of hint at how the, the higher LTV market has improved. So whilst we've had reasonable availability of mortgage deals at 95% for some time now, um, I think the competition in the general market has also seen lenders looking to compete more actively in those higher LTV spaces. So that's good for borrowers. It's, it's good for those first-time buyers who are wondering how they're going to scrape together a, a deposit that's big enough to get on the market, uh, get their foot on the ladder, and it's helped bring the rates down, although it is worth pointing out that, of course, they are still coming at higher rates than for those borrowers who can manage to pull together a bigger deposit. Inevitably, with this, there will be questions as to whether lenders are beginning to relax too much but I think actually if you start looking at you know five percent of the market there's still you know the affordability test to go through actually we should be looking at the positives of having a, a better functioning market for those with smaller deposits uh, as well as those who can manage to pull together the bigger down payments. So you'd say that the market's in a lot better shape than it was 11 years ago? It's really encouraging to see more lenders looking to offer products at, at, to that type of borrower. You know, as long as they're keeping the underwriting standards at the, the levels you'd expect, which they, they have been, then then I think seeing slightly better rates for them. You know, two-year fixed rates are under 3% now, and you can even get five-year just, just a touch under 3%. So the options have improved, but clearly they're still some some way higher than those, um, those products that we were talking about a moment ago, which are generally for the lower loan-to-value customer for the remortgage business, etc. Well, it'd be certainly interesting to revisit the uh, high LTV statistics in, uh, in the next quarter and see the direction of travel. David, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.
Peter Izard is Business Development Manager at Investec Private Bank. He joins us to uh, shine a light on the high net worth client market. Uh, hello, Peter. Yes, hello there, Kevin. Hi. Now, let's define what a high net worth client is. Well, Kevin, a very good question and one that I always start with. Uh, what does the regulator define as high net worth? And simplistically, they say that a high net worth mortgage customer is a customer with an annual net income of no less than 300,000 or net assets of no less than 3 million or whose obligations are guaranteed by a person with an income or assets of such an amount. Now, that's as technical as we'll get today. But effectively, I think that's a great starting point. That's what the regulator class is as high net worth. And and certainly that's what we regard and that's what we play as our definition of a high net worth client. Does that mean that they are treated differently by the regulator or the people that are giving advice to uh, high net worth clients are treated differently? I think it's fair to say that they, they are treated differently, yes. Um, you have such thing as called the high net worth waiver. Uh, the regulators in, in post-MMR wisdom uh, felt that if you met that definition of a high net worth client, you were deemed to be financially, uh, should we say, savvy enough uh, not to require financial advice. And as such, you could sign the high net worth waiver that uh, requires you not to need any advice. Um, Our stance from an intermediary perspective is that we actually want our clients to go through an advised process. Um, And overwhelmingly, they do. So with our intermediary channel, we actually always encourage both our intermediaries and our clients to have an advised process. Occasionally, clients uh, choose not to, uh, and that's when the high net worth waiver can come into play. What would you say to brokers who say they've never come across high net worth clients? How how do they get them, and what do they do if one sort of knocks on their door? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, Actually, many brokers I speak to tell and say, oh, I don't deal with high net worth. And, you know, why I have a very small average loan size, et cetera. And actually, high net worth, uh, interestingly, believe it or not, you know, you can come across them occasionally. So I think the first thing to do is to be aware of what to do if you do get a client that is a high net worth and potentially private bank, because they do have some idiosyncrasies that will require special treatment. Um, and key thing to do engage with banks because actually most private banks, ourselves included, are very approachable um, and honesty is the best policy. So if you've never dealt with a high net worth client, be honest with us, say I have a client, this is the outline of what they require and we'll work with the intermediary in, in helping them. As for how you get high net worth clients, recommendations are a very, very important piece. If you do a good job for a high net worth client, they will mix in the circles of other high net worth clients, unsurprisingly. Um, And they're a very colloquial, uh, very, you know, sort of combined together type of group of people. Um, And they'll very happily recommend. But another thing I always find, Kevin, which amazes me, is many high net worth clients um, will simply Google search. Um, because they actually tend to have a long-standing relationship with their accountant, uh, a long-standing relationship with perhaps a law firm. Um, But not many of them have 
what I call long-standing relationships with mortgage brokers. Um, so either they'll be referred by their accountant or solicitor, or in the first instance, they'll gravitate to a Google search um, and effectively see what comes up from there or recommendations. So even if you don't play in that market, you need to be aware of it in case it ever crosses your bow. And how might their mortgage requirements differ from you know, a broker's typical client? Well, often it's the the first starting point is the loan size is often considerably higher than, than, than the norm. Average loan sizes will certainly be in the millions rather than in the hundreds of thousands. The complexity of the client's borrowing requirements and structure and income will be a massive component. Often many of our clients are paid in foreign currencies. Um, they may well have uh, business interests where they draw a minimum amount from the business and they leave it in the business. Um, tax planning is always at the forefront of their mind. So their affairs may well uh, involve um, uh, trust or limited company structures. So I think the common similarities are that they'll often earn income in various sources. Their income will be complex and not just a single source. And the structure that they will require uh, will often require that bespoke um, private bank angle that looks at it very holistically. Uh, and of course, finally, they will have a very diverse range of assets, which often can be used to add into the actual deal. So many of them will have investments or will have investments in both their business or their funds or in stocks and shares of which uh, often many of them don't want to utilize. Um, so borrowing is uh, is a key component. And, you know, with such high-value mortgages, presumably, though, uh, affordability is less of an issue. I mean, what sort of income multiples can a high-net-worth individual typically secure? Well, private banks are governed by the same regulatory requirements as all the other lenders. Um, we have to report any lending that is over four and a half times income um, and uh, only a, a small 15% uh, of one's book can be uh, over that 15% limit. So when it comes to LTI, it, it, most private banks don't have an LTI limit as such. Often what will happen is that the income that they can use is often far greater than perhaps the standard retail banks. So the LTI by association is somewhat reduced. But I think the common characteristic of private bank high net worth lending is the fact that the number of sources of income that can be used and the various makes up, makeup of the income requires that bespoke nature that it's impossible to say what the average LTI is or what the maximum LTI would be. Um, certainly for us, uh, we have the mantle that we're very much client-led. So to put a, a figure on it is impossible. Um, you know, one client, we may end up doing a very small LTI, but on the other extent, we might do a client with a very large LTI. No one size fits all, one scenario fits all, if that makes sense. It is very bespoke in its, uh, in its whole uh, theme. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of, of private banking. It's the um, I always use the analogy. It's uh, it's a bit like the Savile Row of, of of suits. You know, it's a little bit more expensive, but actually, it's it's absolutely made to measure.
So obviously private banks typically then are more flexible with criteria across the board and that's what you're paying for, would you say? Yeah, so inevitably the um, both the fees, the set-up fees, um, and generally, but the margin has reduced uh, over the years, uh, the rate will, will be more expensive um, uh, compared to a standard high street retail uh, fund or client or mortgage, for sure. Um, however, um, I think representatively so, that figure has diminished somewhat over the years as competition has increased, as funding has uh, funding costs have uh, reduced, etc. But I think it's it's absolutely fair to say that there will be a, a slight premium. And of course, clients in our world who require that funding um, may, and I use the word may, be able to uh, have their affairs arranged on the high street, but often at very much reduced LTVs or uh, not lent at all. Um, and the one thing that high net worth clients value is debt. Uh, debt is not a dirty word. Debt is actually a way of making your money uh, and your investments work as hard as you possibly can. And as such, if you have a bank that will lend you the, the money that, that you need and the structure that meets your specific circumstances, actually, they're very happy to pay a premium for that uh, opportunity. And so in summary, Peter, I mean, what, what advice would you give to a broker who comes across a high net inquiry? Don't be scared, um, but also be honest. It is different and it is something that one should embrace, but also go into it with your eyes open. Um, you know, doing a, a, a complex private bank lend is very, very different to what uh, many brokers would be used to, which is the traditional retail, or dare I say it, smaller specialist lend. Reach out to some private banks. Most of them are quite accessible to the intermediary market. Um, but actually always seek um, a, a, an opinion. Um, but also don't just do what some do in, in a sense of they get a high net worth deal. They realize they can't place it on the high street and they very politely say to the client, I'm sorry, I can't help. Uh, embrace it and endorse it because actually when you've done your first one or two, uh, you'll learn that actually there's some massive opportunities in this market. Um, and it's fair to say that it's a growing market. Uh, the number of clients that will meet that FCA definition of high net worth is going to increase over the years for absolute sure. So it's a market that one, A, needs to be aware of, B, needs to embrace, uh, and C, don't dismiss that you're never going to happen and you're never going to see it because um, actually experience tells me you will uh, and it's a massive opportunity not to be missed. Peter Izard, thank you very much for your time. Now, I'm joined on the line by Ross Jeffries, who is a mortgage and protection advisor at Panoramic Wealth Management Limited. Hi, Ross. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Good, thank you. And uh, Ross, you're based in Tunbridge Wells. And whilst I know you deal with a wide variety of clients, you spend a large amount of time dealing with millennials. First question, I suppose, is why do you target millennials? The, the reasoning behind targeting millennials is um, we are, as a generation, often painted as the, the lazy, avocado-loving 
generation that actually are never going to be able to afford houses. Uh, we we can't build up a pension because, to be fair, we won't be retiring for for best part of uh, 60, 70 years for some of us, or or so we are led to believe. But no, it it, it is definitely a, a distinct area where firms such as ourselves can can tap into. How do millennials differ from you know other maybe slightly older mortgage clients? I think the whole millennial generation have have been almost encouraged that once you own your house, it's pretty much in the British psyche that that's when you can almost class yourself as successful. Our parents have bought houses, our grandparents have bought houses, um, and it's almost ingrained in into that British psyche, more so than the Germans or the French who are happy to rent for life. Um, but obviously they have different rental controls. So a lot of the, the time that they, they can afford it because it's it's more sensibly priced. Um, but one thing that you do see is people renting as millennials trying to get into London or, or, or other larger cities. And the rent is so high, they're almost eating into the, what would be savings to, that they would put towards their deposit. So I do think that is quite a, a bit of a conundrum. Whether do you, do you try and stay at home with your parents slightly longer and save up for a deposit, or do you try and have a bit of a, a, a change of lifestyle and, and try and enjoy yourself whilst renting, but then having nothing at, at the end of the month to put towards savings for your own house? So obviously, as you've outlined, they are facing quite serious affordability issues. I mean, how are you helping them with these? You know, the clients that are successful and raise a deposit and buy a place, are they, you know, typically are they just very high earners or are they just sacrificing everything else and living at home with their parents? Uh, how are they making it work? I do see both like young high earners and then those that are, are lucky enough from their point of view to have parents' houses in London. So they, they are trying to live with their parents as long as they can get away with. Um, but what one area that is helpful to certainly some professions, is, is the young professional ranges. So the, the, the newly qualified accountants, solicitors, teachers, doctors, vets can uh, borrow slightly increased multiples, up to five and a half, six times their salary. And, and some lenders do include spouses within that. So all of a sudden you're, you're borrowing a lot more than you've been led to believe on, on the high street. And, and I do think that is quite a, a, a decent catch point because people are thinking oh i can only borrow this all of a sudden they've they can put another times their salary on top uh, and, and that can then transform what they're thinking they can afford what advice would you have for other mortgage brokers who are looking to target the millennial market any advice just start now because there, there's lots of talk about once the baby boomer generation start passing down the wealth um, to kids and grandkids there's going to be however many trillions passed down to, to those millennials. And there's no point waiting until that wealth has passed to then start going, oh, now they've got money, I'm going to start talking to them. Because now's the only time that I can make any money out of them. So if, if they start now and, and start getting those relationships building, then when they actually get into some money, get into the wealth, then they have a point of contact that they already know have started to trust and know that they actually believe in them as a client rather than just the money that they happen to now have received. Finally, um, you know, as we've outlined, you provide mortgage and protection advice for an IFA firm. 
it was fair to say that traditionally mortgage advice has been a less of a priority, shall we say, for IFAs. I mean, is this changing, do you see? And if so, you know, why do you think it's changing? There, there is a, a distinct lack of, of mortgage advisors within IFA firms. I think partly because of, of how long certain transactions can take. There is quite a lot of red tape these days. And, and obviously, when I was reading about the mortgage market in my textbooks, and learning about what self-cert mortgages used to be like, I, obviously it, it sort of created this, this void where people have almost taken a step away from them. Um, but I, I do think, especially as a young advisor, it's a great starting point to get client-facing, understand how actual real-life circumstances change and, and you're actually doing something that changes someone's life. I've, I've had a few clients where it's been their second or third property in terms of moves in their life and this effectively allows them to move into what would be their dream home where their kids can grow up and they can grow old which is a massive part in their life and that actually then sort of gets through to you when you're seeing those families move into those places. Thanks for your time Ross. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's podcast. If you have any comments, we'd love to hear from you. Equally, if you're a broker and would like to appear on Three of the Best, email me on kevin at bestadvice.co.uk. For sponsorship and advertising inquiries, email advertising at bestadvice.co.uk. Thanks for listening and join us next Friday for Sound Advice. Have a good week. <laughs>